There's a time and a place for black and white, like when you're learning to play piano, or when you want a big two-toned cookie, or when shopping for a pet zebra. But if you want to attract customers, there's no room for black and white, so go to Staples. Staples specializes in bold, hard-to-miss color printing. And now at Staples, get 20% back in rewards on color printing, from banners to brochures and copies to presentations. Print more color, save more money at Staples. In-store only. Ends 11 10, 18. Restrictions apply. See store associate or staples.com slash 20 back for details. You're listening to Turf Show Radio. With the first pick in the 2016 NFL Draft, the Los Angeles Rams select Jared Goff, quarterback, California. Give it to Gurley. Gurley extending to the goal line. Touchdown. Todd Gurley. That puts him at 1,000 yards on the button in his rookie season. And now, here's your host. Hello, everybody, and welcome to an all-new Turf Show Times Radio. We are back, and I know a lot of you were wondering if my son took, excuse me, took Joe's job. Joe, did he take your job? Yep. Yeah, he did. What? No. 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 All right. Well, Joe is back, so you guys can stop worrying. Uh, He was never actually gone. But uh, he is back, and we have a guest with us, don't we, uh, Joe? Excuse me, I'm fumbling tonight. It's been a long day. We do have a great guest on uh, over from the Finsider, SB Nation's uh, Miami Dolphins site. Um, I was on their show uh, last night, so tonight uh, we thought we'd have Matthew Canada on uh, from the Finsider. Truth be told, I just wanted you to say his name because I wasn't explicitly sure how to pronounce it. I wanted to say Canada. So I wasn't sure if that was going to be right. So I wanted to let you fall on the sword. It's Miami Dolphins fans X. He demanded anonymity. <laughs> Matt, how you doing tonight, man? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. So I'll just kick things off right away. We'll get into some discussion about the Dolphins here. Uh Joe, unless you've got uh, some little what's-its uh, from last week's game that you want to cover, I don't really think there's much there. I mean, it was a 9-6 to win. Yay. Yeah, I mean, I'll save any uh, details from that after because I think, um, you know, with, with the news that Jared Goff obviously is coming in to start, I think, and, and the fact when you win a game with nine points, that it just doesn't feel <laughs> like a win. It's not the kind of win that you 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 draw any you Unless know certitude or confidence from. Yeah, well, that's that's a little. We're not. How about that? We're not Alabama. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think we can save some details for that. But uh, you know, between golf and obviously the chance to get to 500 standing in front of us in a year where 500 could be good enough for the playoffs, I definitely want to get as much time with Matt talking about the Dolphins as we can. And I, why don't we jump right into that, Matt? 
you know, what kind of news does, I guess you could say, the announcement of Goff being the starter over Keenum, how does that affect the Dolphins' preparation for this game, or does it? Yeah, so that's that's a little interesting. Adam Gates talked earlier today, just a few hours ago, actually, about, about the preparation for a rookie quarterback who's never played a meaningful NFL snap. Of course, he played in the preseason, and you can say that was meaningful because he's getting reps. But let's be realistic. The preseason is completely different than the regular season. Uh, the only tape they really have of him in game situations is when he was at Cal. So Adam Gase is telling his team that, look, listen, guys, you don't have a ton of tape on this on this guy. We don't really know what he's going to do when he get out, get, gets out there in an NFL setting. So they're trying to treat it, you know, like like anyone else. They're not they're not trying to underestimate Goff and and think that he's just going to be a pushover. Obviously, they're chopping at the bit to get to him, a rookie quarterback making his first NFL start against one of the best defenses statistically in the NFL right now, uh, top 10, uh, even when you talk about yards allowed per game, rushing yards allowed, and so forth, and third down conversions as well. So it's really going to be a challenge for Goff. I think they might key in like they did uh, several weeks ago when, uh, I, I forget who they played, but young quarterback and and they were very aggressive with the first read on the quarterback so if they play like that again with golf where he's making that first read and locking in on that first read like many young quarterbacks do they can play aggressive style of football and possibly cause a lot of turnovers in this game against the rams coming up on sunday joe do you want to jump in there yeah so I'm, try, I'm trying to, and obviously I haven't watched a ton of Dolphins football this year, but I'm, I'm trying to understand what's the biggest difference between the one and four start and the four game winning streak is, was there a switch that was flipped? What's going on? What's the, what's the big change? Yeah. So two, so a few things. The first thing on offense is they have a running game. Now they didn't have a running game when they started off one and four, they uh, didn't discover Jay at that time. They were relying on Arian Foster. Remember Jay didn't even make the opening trip to Seattle. They left him, in Miami, and here's a here's an inside tidbit. Jay Ajayi was almost cut after training camp, believe it or not. And this right. dude has turned yeah. things, dude. He has turned things around. Uh, so huge credit to him for turning his own professional career around. But had Isaiah P, who's of course now injured uh, from the car accident, uh, we hopefully gets better, of course. Uh, but had Isaiah P not been hurt, had Arian Foster not been banged up, had Damian Williams not been hurt in training camp. JHI probably would have been cut or traded, which is absolutely crazy if you think about it now. But the fact of the matter is the guy was not mature enough to handle what he was given, that starting role heading into training camp and the preseason. He has, like I said, turned his complete career around in a matter of weeks and has become a true professional that really no one in the Dolphins organization saw coming this quickly. So they have a running game, first of all. The offense, the new offense, uh, took them five, six weeks to really start clicking. Everyone knows what they're doing now. Tannehill, Ryan Tannehill, the quarterback, is improving in the pocket. He's using his feet more to escape the pocket. He's running. He's making plays. Everyone's on the same page, which they weren't in the first five weeks of the season. On the defensive side of the ball, they weren't trusting the system as a whole. Uh, they were all kind of still doing their own things. Uh, they were not filling their assignments. They were not filling their gaps. They were freelancing. They were doing whatever they really wanted to do. They've learned to trust the system. Several weeks ago, Adam Gase made a huge statement after the uh, disastrous game against the Bengals on Thursday Night Football. He cut two offensive, uh, three offensive guards, uh, offensive linemen the next day, Dallas Thomas, uh, Jameel Douglas, and Billy Turner. 
and that sent a message. He benched uh, starting cornerback Byron Maxwell. He made other changes throughout the lineup and really sent a message to this team that if you're not producing, you're not going to play. And the guys have really responded to what he's done. And they've gotten better as a unit. They've gotten better as individuals. And really, it's a whole new mentality of trusting the system, trusting each other, having belief in each other. It's a completely different team. As I was saying last night on Finsider Radio, uh, the first four or five weeks of the season, we were looking at it like the season was done and who the quarterback was going to be the Dolphins next year. And if they were going to draft number one, number two, number three, or number four, now it's, okay, what do we need to do to get into the playoffs? And really, you hear the media talking about the Dolphins, and it's a completely different team than the first part of the season. Josh, before I let you get back in on this, I just want to clear one thing up, uh, Matt. You were talking about the idea of maturity from J and J, and yeah, yeah. If you can explain, I, I, and I'm only asking, and I get maybe it also has to do with the offensive linemen, but I think if unless I'm wrong, the offensive linemen are still the same, more or less, right? As the as the as what you guys expected the starters to be, and so if that's the case. Um, I'm just confused as to how you go from, you know, a fifth round draft pick a year ago to being mm-hmm. on the outskirts going into week one. And then, you know, the last four and especially before the bye, two games in a row where you rush for over 200 yards. I, it, it, I mean, clearly you, you guys lost by two in week one to Seattle, lost by a touchdown to New yeah. England. You guys could have used 400 damn rushing yards in two games. So I'm, I'm, I'm confused as to, you know, what maturity took place between August and October and, and why it was worthwhile waiting for that to take place when clearly the results on the football field have been, you know, more than sufficient. Yeah, so here's what happened. J.H.I., after the Dolphins tried all offseason to upgrade the running back position, Adam Gase wanted to keep Lamar Miller. Mike Tannenbaum said, who's the uh, vice president of operations, football operations, said, no, we're going to let Lamar Miller walk. So Lamar Miller goes to Houston. The Dolphins then signed C.J. Anderson to an offer sheet. Uh, at the last second, literally the last few minutes before the deadline, Denver Broncos match it. They lose C.J. Anderson. The Dolphins kick the tires on Matt Forte, decide they're not going to pay him that kind of money uh, to come down to Miami. They offer Chris Johnson uh, from the Cardinals a contract. He decides to go back to the Cardinals. So they, they tried to replace uh, – their lead running back, Jay Ajayi, basically four times, and they failed four times. And so Jay Ajayi was basically handed a starting job, and he took it for granted. And he even said he took it for granted. Adam Gase said that he made a mistake in just handing Jay Ajayi the starting job. They brought in Arian Foster, but Arian Foster didn't really start practicing in full and, and really playing until halfway through training camp. So, so you had this second-year player who, who was handed a starting job and really didn't know how to act and take it. And Adam Gase and J.H.I. have both admitted this themselves. And so Adam Gase left him in Miami on the first week to Seattle and said, you're not coming with us. You're not making the trip. And that sent a message to Ajayi. And ever since then, he's slowly been improving and improving and improving. And it hasn't just been one-sided either. Adam Gase wasn't trusting Ajayi. Until one time, right before the 200-yard, the first 200-yard game, J.H.I. sat down with Adam Gase and said, listen, here are the plays I like to run. I need you to call these, and I will make this work for you. And there's three plays. And Adam Gase uh, said this in his press conference, and Adam Gase listened to Ajayi and started calling these plays in that first game where he went off for 200-plus yards. 
and it worked. And ever since then, the rest is history. Uh, so it's really been an evolution of maturity from Ajayi. It's been an evolution of Adam Gase learning what Jay Ajayi likes to do and what he can do. And also, you mentioned the offensive line. Remember, um, Jawan James, the right tackle, was uh, regressing the first few weeks of the season with a new technique. He's finally getting back on track. Mike Pouncey was hurt for several weeks, so that left the Dolphins without their starting center. You had Brandon Albert hurt on and off, so he was in and out of the lineup. But really, once he got that first 200-yard game, that was really the first time where all five of the Dolphins' projected starters on the offensive line were playing together. And now on Sunday, you do have Brandon Albert, the left tackle, out again. So that's going to be interesting because Laramie Tunsil is going to move over to left tackle, and you're going to get Craig Urbick at left guard lining up with Aaron Donald. So that's going to be an interesting matchup. Josh, J.J., he's the fourth player in NFL history, back-to-back games over 200. O.J. Simpson, Earl Williams, and, of course, Ricky Williams, former Miami Dolphin. That's Josh, right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that the thing that I took away from from what you said was honestly had nothing to do with this game. But I just kept thinking, what the hell is it with Boise State players in acting the fool (laughs) as soon as they get to the NFL? Like that was the first thing that popped into my head. But you talk about that maturation process that Jay Ajayi has gone through and it seems the Dolphins as a whole has gone have as a whole have gone through. And now obviously they're going to be faced with the task of like you said defending a quarterback for whom they have no tape. Uh I mean you yeah. can put on Sonny Dykes's offense but that's useless film because it's not Jeff Fisher's and and Jeff Fisher is not going to run the bear raid. It's just simply not going to happen. So when you do institute a game plan for, say, stopping a guy like Goff, do you place more emphasis? Because I think uh, Meissen and I had this discussion. Do you look at those games where Goff struggled, you know, when they played defenses like USC, like Stanford, like Utah, where he had three, four, five interception days? Do you look at those games and take bits and parts from that and try and institute that as a whole? Or do you play straight up in your system and trust that you're going to get the job done against a guy like Goff, knowing that he's a rookie with zero NFL experience? Yeah, that's that's actually a really good question. And the philosophy of Adam Gates and Vance Joseph, the defensive coordinator, and this sounds like common sense, right? But a lot of NFL coaches say it, but they never do it is they do a weekly game plan, and the Dolphins truly do a week-to-week game plan. And Adam Gase said in his introductory press conference that he learned this from Josh McDaniels, uh, the offensive coordinator of the Patriots and former head coach of the Broncos, that every week, obviously, you have a different opponent. Every week, you should have a different game plan. So what the Dolphins' game plan was last week against the Chargers is not going to be the same against the Rams. And Adam Gase has said in his press conference earlier today that they've been watching a lot of tape of Jared Goff at Cal. So, yes, I do think they will take what has worked against Goff when he was at Cal and use that against them. But I also think this. I think they're going to stack the box and force Goff to beat them. They did this with the Pittsburgh Steelers. After the game, uh, reporters had asked several players, what was the key to beating the Steelers? And this was where the Dolphins came on and surprised everybody and started their winning streak. And they said, we knew we had to shut down the run. Once we shut down Le'Veon Bell, we knew we could get after Ben Roethlisberger and force him into poor decisions 
and rush them in the pocket. And that's exactly what they did. And they did this uh, last week against the Chargers as well. They shut down Melvin Gordon, and they forced Phillip Rivers to make mistakes. So I think they're going to stack the box. Of course, they're going to shut down uh, Todd Gurley as best they can, and they're going to force Goff to beat them in the air. And a rookie making his first NFL start against guys like Ndamukong and Sue and Cameron Wake, I really am not expecting much from him. And going back to Jeff Fisher, his whole mantra is play smash mouth football, let the defense win the game, and you know put it in their hands. So I don't think we're going to see Jared Goff lighting up the scoreboard either, uh, unless some kind of miracle happens. So it's really going to be, like Joe said on our show on Tuesday evening, is really going to be a smash mouth football type of game where the Dolphins might actually get trapped into playing that kind of game. And then we'll see who has the advantage as the game goes forward there. You know, you mentioned stopping Todd Gurley or hoping to stop Todd Gurley, um, which, you know, this season has proven to be quite easy, apparently. Yes. Uh, <laughs> how much uh, of a, an impact uh, is Earl Mitchell's return to the Miami Dolphins front seven? Yeah, so a lot of a lot of fans, when Earl Mitchell went down, they didn't think it would be a huge loss, but it, it really has proven to be a decent loss because – you talk about the rotation of the defensive linemen, the interior line, and even on the outside, you need those fresh legs in there as the game goes on. And the Dolphins had Jordan Phillips and Adamic and Sue in there throughout the majority of the game. They didn't really have fresh legs. They were moving Mario Williams inside. They were, they were trying other things going on there. But they weren't really having that impact that they needed to have. Earl Mitchell uh, hasn't played the season except last week, and he has fresh legs. He is providing that rotation in there. Earl Mitchell really is a more of a run-stopping defensive tackle rather than a guy who's going to collapse the pocket and get the sack. So he does make a difference, and he does help the linebacker uh, get free get free and um, fill their assignments and fill their gaps and get to the running back. So Earl Mitchell is a big return for the Dolphins, and especially with Ndamukong and Sue getting double-teamed almost every single play. Uh, it's a good opportunity for Jordan Phillips and Earl Mitchell to to get in there and cause some disruption in the pocket and in the backfield. Joe, follow that. Yeah, so I got a question. and uh, I've seen enough to know that I don't know enough, and maybe, and I was listening to you guys at the beginning of the podcast last night. It sounds like you guys are up in the air too. Ryan Tannehill, uh, you know, year <laughs> five, 10 touchdowns yeah. to seven interceptions um, on pace for pretty much the same numbers that he's put up the last three years. What What is a Ryan Tannehill? Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> like you say, we don't know. This is this is his, what, fifth year in the NFL, fifth season in the NFL. And every season it's been like, okay, first year it's like you're a rookie, right? You have eight career or you have eight college starts or something like that. So you're re- really right, – right, right less than a rookie, you know, so, okay, you get to the first season, you get to the second season, okay, now you're learning about the NFL. Now you're kind of like a rookie coming in. Third year, all right, this is where you're supposed to break out, Ryan. And he he kind of improves. Fourth year, last year, he regressed so much. And there was a lot going on behind the scenes with the head coach, Joe Philbin, not backing him privately, uh, the offensive quarter not trusting him. This year, you get Adam Gason, the QB whisperer, everyone calls him. And Ryan Tannehill completely bombs and, and plays awful the first few games of the season. And now the Dolphins start winning, so everyone thinks that Ryan Tannehill's this great quarterback all of a sudden. But if you really look at it, 
with the exception of the Chargers game, he has not done a lot this season. He's handed the ball off really well to J.H.I., who's done a lot of the work the past few weeks. The Ryan Tannehill game against the Chargers was absolutely phenomenal, but this was really the first game where they were able to shut down J.H.I. as a featured running back with him in there, and Ryan Tannehill was forced to win the game. And he did. He made some crazy throws. He made some uh, really tough ones as he was getting hit. And he won the game. He helped win the game for the Dolphins. Obviously, the defense really stepped it up in the fourth quarter there for the Dolphins. But, you know, Ryan Tannehill has shown improvement. He has absolute freedom at the line of scrimmage to check out of plays and to check into any play that he wants to. He has the entire playbook at his disposal. We have seen him check out of numerous plays, numerous times during the game, into correct plays. We've also seen him obviously make some mistakes there. But he has gotten better if you look at him compared to last year. His footwork has certainly improved in the pocket. He still lacks some pocket awareness there, holds on the ball a little too long. But I think everyone can agree that he is taking a step in the right direction. It's just with him, you need to have consistency. And he has not shown any consistency from game to game over the last several years. Now, the thing that's promising is that against the Jets, who absolutely has owned him during his time in the NFL, he was able to move the ball. And even against the Bills, who have Rex Ryan has owned him, uh, dating back to his time with the Jets and now with the Bills, Ryan Tannehill was still able to make some things happen there. So that is certainly something that you can look at it and say, okay, he's making improvements. Now it's just stringing together good game to good game to good game. Would you say he's the weak point of the offense? That's a really good question. Yeah, I think so. Because you look at what they have, you got the running game, you got the running back JHI. He's an absolute monster. Uh, you just hope that he continues this this uh, run of good games. No pun intended there, but you just hope he continues there and keeps moving forward. The receivers are, you know, I would say above average. Devontae Parker needs to stay healthy. He has had a lot of trouble doing that this season and last season as well. Jarvis Landry hasn't made the impact over the last several weeks that he made in the beginning of the season. Uh, Kenny Stills is still that deep threat. But really, you look at the offense as a whole, and you and you can kind of pinpoint here and there, but I would say certainly the running back position is a strong point. And if you compare that to the quarterback position, the quarterback will be the number two spot on the offense. What do you think, Josh? What do you, th- what do you think about the Miami defense? Well, uh, the question is whether or not they're going to be able to out-defense the Ram defense uh, because, I I, I mean, like Matt said, this is pretty much going to come down to smash-mouth football in Miami trying not to fall into that trap of playing the Rams game. Though, from what Matt just said, I'm not at all certain that the Dolphins quarterback play is really that much better than the Rams. Uh I mean, Keenum may have lost his job, but I think he was a bit better than 10 and 7, right? Well, I think that, well, the one thing I would point to that's different is Tannehill's system allows yeah. him to work downfield quite a Absolutely. bit with Kenny Stills, right. obviously, right. and Jarvis Landry. The Rams don't do that. Now, I think the question is have they been waiting for a quarterback who can do that? Because Case Keenum can't. Uh, we saw it a bit from Nick. Bowls in 2015, but again, we don't have we don't have Kenny Stills and Jarvis Landry, so yeah. maybe you know if we had those guys add to Jared Goff, you'd see a bit more. So maybe we'll get 
half of that. Maybe we'll get a bit of Miami Dolphins light. Uh, no, but but that's but that's what I'm curious about genuinely here because it sounds like we could interchange one of us for the Dolphins podcast and the problems that they're having seem to be somewhat similar to the problems that the Rams are having sans the running game. Like the Dolphins have that going for them. But outside here's, here's of the that, difference. Yeah, I mean, but outside of that, the two teams are so similar. And I mean, when he was saying when when he was saying this is a fifth year starter, I could hear you in my head saying this is a fifth year head coach. (laughs) And And that's and that's the difference. That's the difference is coaching. It all comes down to coaching for the Dolphins this season. We have seen a dramatic improvement in how the players respond to coaches. And we've seen that with Joe Philbin the past three years and and Sperano before him. The players tuned them out. They did not believe in them. They did not trust them. They did not interact with them well. It is completely different. And with you guys, with Jeff Fisher, he doesn't open his playbook. Adam Gase has opened the playbook for Ryan Tannehill. Ryan Tannehill has six games where he's thrown a pass of at least 50 yards or more, the most in the NFL. So you're right when they say they're not afraid to go downfield. They take their shots when they need to. Uh, You're not going to see that from Jeff Fisher. And whether it's the personnel, whether it's his personality, whether it's style, and whether it's, you know, he just likes to put it on the back of the defense because that's his strong suit and that's what he trusts the most, kind of like Mike Zimmer in Minnesota, you know, and that is what it is. But with Adam Gase in Miami, he has really taken to heart scheming and, and game planning and really attacking the weaknesses of the opposing team. And now that the offense is clicking, now that the defense is clicking, and now that everyone on all sides of the ball are buying into the system, we're seeing everything work together really well. And I don't think you're really seeing that in St. Louis, but you're absolutely right. You well, put Jared Goff in Los Angeles put, now. You, we're definitely I'm not sorry, in Los St. Angeles. Louis. Yeah. Sorry, Los Angeles. But you're absolutely right. If you put Case Keenum in Miami and Ryan Tannehill in Los Angeles, you put Jared Goff in Miami, Ryan Tannehill you in Los just, Angeles. You just made the ears of a lot of Rams fans perk because <laughs> in their mind <laughs> – Ryan Tannehill might represent an upgrade from Case Keenum. I, you just don't know. It yeah, would sure. depend on the Rams fan in the day, right, Joe? Yeah, for the most part. And I think that you you still got a lot of Rams fans that just aren't willing to accept the idea that the system is what limits the quarterback and not the other Absolutely. way around. There, it, there are still Rams fans it, that say your system. that Jeff Fisher – that, yeah. It, it, well, it of, is, and there's, there, there's so many Rams fans that – Go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say a lot of what Matt yeah. is saying are things that we're not – we would like to be able to say on this podcast about the Rams, that, you know, they're starting to get it, that they're reacting to the coaching, that the coach is taking a more active role in this or in that. These are all things that we would love so very badly to come on this podcast and say, but we cannot and will not – because well, it, the system, it, right? It doesn't exist. Yeah. It just doesn't exist. But the, the, the thing that I think, and this is what frustrates me with a lot of Rams fans, is the patience. You you don't have coaches that take as long as Jeff Fisher. I, I get the idea <laughs> that, well, to, when people say Jeff Fisher hasn't had a quarterback, I, okay, he hasn't had one of the best quarterbacks in the league. But number A, they, number A, there have been plenty of other coaches who have dealt with mediocre quarterbacks and and gotten at least some winning seasons out of them. Jeff Fisher, ha- he hasn't with the Rams, and his 22-year history shows that he hasn't. Number B, 
is that you know the way that that Matt's talking about Adam Gase, he's talking about within the context of about ten games. Jeff Fisher's had four and a half seasons, so if <laughs> if other coaches are able to adapt within a ten game you know time frame, when you've got coaches like Philbin that are given much much less time to turn things around. I, I'm not questioning the idea that Jeff Fisher hasn't made it happen. What I'm saying is, why does he deserve more time than anybody else in the NFL? Why does he require five years? And so, you know, I, I get it. Yeah, he, maybe he needed more of an arm, and he got one in Nick Foles, and, you know, the lack of discipline didn't work. But he, here's what I'd say about the Dolphins, and, and maybe this is what can help explain it. If there's maybe something to worry about, it may be the defense, Matt. How, mu- how much faith do you have in that side? And with Vance Joseph as a first-year defensive coordinator, have you seen any of a similar improvement or turnaround? Yeah, Vance Joseph has made uh, chicken salad out of chicken. You know what? The Dolphins cornerbacks, <laughs> uh, really, you put them on any other team, Tony Lippett's probably not a starter. Uh, Byron Maxwell is probably a number two. Xavier Howard, their number two draft pick, has been injured most of the season. Uh, their slot corner, Bobby McCain, got roasted last week, but you know he still made plays when he had to. Rashad Jones is out for the season, one of the best safeties in the NFL. Uh, they got they're they're piecemealing everything together uh, on that unit. And Vance Joseph is doing one hell of a job in in getting that thing together. And he will be a head coach. I give him three years, absolute max. Two years, I think, is when he's going to be a head coach in the NFL. Who knows? Maybe he'll come to Los Angeles when they finally get rid of Jeff Fisher over there. But, no, he has completely turned around the defense um, from last year and from the beginning of this season. He has done a tremendous job with Kiko Alonso there in the middle. Kiko Alonso is sixth in the AFC when it comes to tackles. I can just uh, throw out some stats for you right now in terms of the Dolphins' defense. When it comes to uh, third-down conversions, uh, the Dolphins' defense, is one of the top in the league. Uh, their defense is tied for second in the NFL on third down conversion percentage. Opponents have a 33.3% success rate. The league average is 40.1%. On third and short, Miami leads the league with opponents having just a 42.3% conversion rate. Like I said, Kiko Alonso is tied for six in the AFC. He leads the team with 71 total tackles through 10 weeks. Uh, Nadamik and Sue has been an absolute monster this season. Cameron Wake, uh, going back to Sue real quick, five sacks this season, the most in the NFL by a defensive tackle this year. Uh, Since Sue went to the league in 2010, he has 47 sacks, the second most with uh, 47. Geno Atkins has 47.5. Cameron Wake, who probably is a leading candidate for comeback player of the year, Cameron Wake is uh, second in franchise history with 77 sacks. Currently this season, he's tied for fifth in the AFC and eighth in the NFL with seven sacks. Andre Branch, who came, I believe, from Jacksonville last year and was really an afterthought, he became a starter several weeks ago. Since that time, just a few weeks ago, he has 12 tackles, two and a half sacks, and six quarterback hits. That's not all on talent alone. That's on coaching, that's on motivation, that's on scheming. And we have seen on both sides of the ball in Miami, coaches doing a tremendous job uh, getting their players to play to their full potential and understanding the player's weaknesses, understanding their strengths, and then understanding how to parlay that into the game to find success. Yeah, talking about Kiko Alonso, so, when, was the, when was the last time he made a play? Come on. Uh, University yeah. of Oregon, actually. Oh, or um, what yeah. did he do last Dude, week? Dude, he was a stud at Oregon, though. He was a he stud was. at Oregon. I, 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 come on, I was being was sarcastic. He had a pick six last week. He was awesome. 
<laughs> he, had a, he was a stud his rookie year too. Then he got hurt. You know. Sure. No, I, I was just mocking the fact they had a great he had a great interception return last week. It was impressive. Yeah. We don't get to do those kind of things. What are you going to say, Josh? Uh, no, I was going to. Uh, Mike, my last question, I guess, would be this: So, when you look at the Rams' three and one start, and now, yeah, you know, that was impressive. This this crap. But the Dolphins having the start that they had that Joe mentioned early in the show, in a word, would you say that it's simply that the Dolphins' progress boils simply down to coaching? Everybody has completely yeah. bought in and, and that this is a team whose upward ceiling is as far as their quarterback, in theory, can take them. I, I mean... Because from the sounds of it, you reading off those stats, that's a scary thought that one guy can come in and have that much of an, of an, of an impact. Um, and, and you're right that that is indicative of coaching. It absolutely is. Whenever you have numbers like that across the board, it absolutely isn't just talented players. It's, it's especially guys who, as you said, were afterthoughts, cuts. Uh, you know, guys that they picked up on the cheap, whatever the case may be, these are guys that have been turned into a reclamation project and are now, it's very Pete Carroll-esque in a way. Yeah, uh-huh. It's very Absolutely. Pete Carroll-esque. And, and, and it just seems like everybody is by, so however far the Dolphins can go is really up to Tannehill. So this Sunday, we should probably expect a beatdown of whatever Tannehill can deliver. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I think so because I don't think JHI is going to get anywhere near what he's got in the past few weeks with your stout defensive line. The one thing I will say is your linebackers are a little, little bit of a liability. The Dolphins love to run the outside zone plays. And if JHI gets around that corner, uh, there's no telling what he can do throughout the entire game. So I think the Dolphins will try to exploit your linebackers, but your Fresno defensive State. line. I'm well aware. What of was what that? I said I covered Fresno <laughs> State for several years. I'm well aware of what that guy can do. I've seen it in person. <laughs> it's that guy yeah. when he's going is a just a beast. It's just a beast. Oh yeah, and that's one that's one of his favorite plays to run. So I think the Dolphins will run that quite a bit. But uh, I think they'll try to get away from defensive line quite a bit. Quick passes from Tannehill, take the shots when needed, but. This may be another game where, like the Chargers game, they asked Tannehill to lead them to victory and put it on their defense to help secure the, the win and seal the game for them. Sounds reasonable to me. Joe, you got anything? What, when was the last time you guys had a five-game winning streak, Matt? The last time uh, we had a five-game winning streak was in 2008 with Tony Sperano when the Dolphins won the AFC East. Uh, their fifth win was against the Jets. In week 17, Brett Favre drew the game-ending uh, interception, and, and that was then. And like this year's team, the Dolphins started off, I think, 1-3, and 1-4, and 0-4, oh actually, and, and then surprised everyone with the Wildcat against the Patriots, and the rest is history from there. So very similar, yeah, very similar season to that 2008 season. So they're on a four-game win streak right now. They'll try to make it five on Sunday, and they'll match 2008. It's interesting, and I'll let you go after this. It, overall, it's just two franchises that need more success. You guys have had one yeah. playoff appearance since the end of the 01 season. We haven't put together a winning season since 03. I, I get it. Four and five, five and four. There's a lot of football left to be played. 
Uh, I just wonder if these are two franchises that in the years to come we're going to see uh, dealing with a little bit more success, and we won't only be talking in November. Maybe we'll be talking on later on the year. Matt, thanks for coming on, man. All right, man. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you, Matt. Right, okay, Todd, everybody. Finsider. Uh, give him a follow over there. I think it's Finsider Radio, and obviously the Finsider at the site. Uh, good stuff, man. Good stuff from Matt, Josh. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, you know, the thing that I was honestly and truthfully taken aback by is is how he, whether or not it's true, he certainly sold a, a very vivid picture of the team buying into Adam Gase, buying into what the what he wants to do and his vision for the franchise. Um, it's just the total opposite of what's going on right now. Well, I mean, you, you know, we're one win removed from a four-game losing streak, and they're on a four-game winning streak. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's what it's what we said at the beginning of the season. When you asked me if Fisher Bowl produces a 13-win season, how would I feel about it? And I said, it'd be great, because what if you win, it validates everything. It, it validates everything that you're doing. And so for a, a first-year head coach who brought in an entire new staff, uh, you know, they, they came out of the blocks really slowly. And whatever whatever they did and i don't i don't know if it's this belief or the maturation of jay Ajayi that got him back in the lineup or something else that clicked wherever the hell these things click that can change the trajectory of a team they got it they got it working um and in one common opponent that's going to be with an asterisk that's going to be interesting to look at the dolphins only lost by a touchdown to the patriots uh, earlier in the season. Now, it was a weird game. That was before Tom Brady was back. Uh, so, and, you know, Gronkowski wasn't 100%. So, obviously, that's a different set of circumstances. I'm not, you know, ignoring that. But New England came out and, and whooped them in the first half, got up 24 to 3. And then Miami made a game of it. They only lost by a touchdown. So, I, I'm interested to see when the Rams deal with the Patriots, and obviously, you know, we won't be thinking about the Dolphins three weeks from now when we're dealing with the Patriots, but when, when you talk about those common opponents, something that obviously is a uh, common refrain at the collegiate level for the decision makers that I know you're so fond of, um, you know, that that's one of those things where we can look back and say, okay, here's how we did about the Dolphins, here's what we did about the Patriots, here's what they dealt with with each other, how do we make sense of that? Because right now, when, when you've got a team that comes out 3-1 and one and then drops a four-game losing streak, uh, I, I get it, the, the, you're coming off a win, and that's great, and you got a new quarterback, and you want to roll around in that, but it, it's impossible to look at this as if this is a team that just doesn't have it together. And I, you, you got to wonder if a rookie quarterback is going to be able to come in and fix that in his first ever NFL game. Yeah, and if you ask Eric Dickerson, the answer is no. Um, well. <laughs> why couldn't he have given us that hot take? That's what I want to know. Yeah, right. That sort of thing. Maybe we should talk to Eric Dickerson. When was the last time you had a podcast with him? And it's on the know. site. Everybody go check it out. Yeah, check out check that, that podcast. Eric Dickerson. Um, Look, man, here's what I'd say. This is when we can talk about some of the stuff coming out of last week. Uh, again, thanks to Matt Finsider for coming on. Finsider Radio, the Finsider, everybody. Give him a follow on Twitter. Uh, check him out on Facebook, all that good stuff. Um, it's... It's a bit strange. You know, the first topic of discussion that we had was that a win possibly would keep Jared Goff further away from the starting role because of what had been said previously 
about the Rams waiting until they were out of playoff contention. So clearly that wasn't true. That report coming from Ian Rappaport of NFL Network, who obviously is well connected. So it's just another example of uh, whether you want to say mistruths or misdirection, honesty misdirection coming out of the Rams. That's the modus operandi. That's nothing new. I, I, I guess what I'm interested to see is can the Rams translate the, the defensive dominance that they've had for a couple weeks now? It's not just the Jets. They held the Panthers to 13 points. They held the Giants to 17 points before the bye. But remember, they had a pick six in that game. So they only scored 10 points on offense. A couple weeks before that, even, you know, you had the Cardinals that they held to, seven, to 13, Seahawks that they held to three in the home opener. They've, they've had defensive showings that have been really impressive, and they're coming off of three successive ones. I, I wonder if they can do that against an offense like the Dolphins that's been putting up points in bunches. Because if they can't, you got to, and it's not about Jared Goff, you just got to be worried about the Rams' offense and the capability of a first time starter, regardless of how highly he's been drafted, to really put up points against anybody. Well, the one thing you got to be encouraged by is even looking at this team, like, as you were mentioning points per game on defense, I, I, I thought I'd noticed something earlier, and sure enough, I confirmed a suspicion. <clears throat> you look at the Miami Dolphins on defense, and they're good for roughly about 24 points a game, is, is what I'm... It's, yeah. yeah, like, it's weird. They're just... They're good for about 24 points a game on defense. That's about the minimum that that Goff would be need to hit in order to have a chance of winning this game. That 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 has done the trick a, a healthy number of times. So you have to assume that in order to win this game, the Dolphins are going to have to surrender 24 points to a rookie quarterback. And that just doesn't seem possible to me. This Dolphin defense. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. I, the, the only thing I wonder is, will they need that? How many points are Who the Rams they going Kessler? to need? Sure. Yeah. It, 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 there, there's Mariota. definitely a question about. Huh? Mariota. 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 Yeah, I mean. And Jacoby Brissett, I think that I think they've taken five different quarterbacks out of the game. So there's definitely an issue about pressure. And the, I mean, when anytime you got Ndamukong Sue up front, it's going to anchor a ton of focus on the defensive line, and that's justified. Well, that too, but the Rams aren't. The, the Rams aren't exactly a team. Here's what I'd say: that the Rams are, have won games without scoring a ton. The Dolphins are doing opposite. They're they're outscoring people in kind of shootouts. You can't do both in a single game. And so this game is going to hew one way or the other. Either it's going to you know lock into some of what we saw against the Jets, a field position game where the teams are battling, and it might be it might be one of these things where the Rams and Dolphins offense defense matchup with Jared Goff going against that defense isn't very good and it's just sloppy but at the same time the Rams defense and the Dolphins offense as good as they are are matched in a real battle of wits and the output is something closer to the 9 to 3 9 to 6 10 to 17 games that we're used to than the 24 31 or whatever kind of games they're putting out um 
Because I think if, if you get locked into that, at least the Rams have a chance. If we get locked into a shootout, the only game that we've played like that was Detroit. And that's just not – those aren't the kind of games that you want to get into because I don't think the Rams have the firepower to deal with it. And obviously with Jared Goff in year one, uh, you, you don't want to hurt his confidence by forcing him to, t- to spray the chart everywhere and, and risk throwing a bunch of interceptions and damaging his confidence and stunning his growth because there's no I doubt that. I, don't I, was, think- I was just going to say – the, the the one the one thing that you've got to agree with in terms of holding him out to this point, his long term development is way more important than any short short term accolades. Oh yeah, absolutely. And Matt Waldman had an absolutely outstanding piece uh, that he wrote today, uh, comparing Goff's long term development to to that of a musician, uh, and he actually sort of looked at Dak Prescott and talked about both of them. Uh, and compared them both to either a solo act or a uh, somebody playing in a quartet. And if you get the chance, we've retweeted the piece. Uh, I know Bate has. I know I have. I'm pretty sure Lanny has. So if you get the chance to check it out, I highly recommend it. It was a really, really well-constructed piece. Um, but to your point, it's just... The the one thing that that I have been curious about is how will Fisher react? And and I asked Mison this question, and I thought he had a really thought provoking answer. You know, I asked him, is is this a guy that Fisher is going to protect? You know, because the, that's the one thing that Jeff Fisher has done very well throughout his career. And he goes, any other year, you ask me that question, I say yes. In fact, even at the start of this year, I still say yes. He's like, but as things stand right now with where Jeff Fisher's at and how he needs this to go a certain way in order to get an extension because his contract is up, he's not at all certain that Jeff Fisher is going to be as forgiving on the podium after a game. So I'm if, if, if Myson is right, then Jeff Fisher doesn't give two shits about Jared Goff's confidence. Um, And in that case, he may look at this and say, well, the kid's good at throwing the damn football, so let's throw the damn football. You know, he has to be able to make some of those throws that Case couldn't make in his 55, uh, you know, throw game, even though Fisher said we can't do that. It wouldn't surprise anyone if he did it again. And he'd write it off by saying... Well, we wanted to play to Jared's strengths, and if we hadn't played to him, you guys would have written us up and said that we didn't, you know, I, you can just picture the Fisher answer in your head. Sure, sure. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely curious what you think. Is this going to be a guy that Fisher protects, or is he going to be less inclined to do that because he himself is on the hot seat? Yeah, I think the answer is I have no idea. I have, I have literally, sincerely, I have no damn clue uh, what to expect in terms of what's going to be set up for golf. What, what I said last night on their podcast in terms of what to expect, I said two things. Number one, I'd expect some physical traits to be obvious from Jared. Golf, especially juxtaposed against Case Keenum. Now, Dolphins fans aren't going to see it, but obviously it's Rams fans. When we've been treated to, you know, 10 weeks of Case Keenum, and then you switch to Jared Goff, a full game of Jared Goff, not a preseason, you know, one drive here or there. When we get a full game of Jared Goff, I expect to see a couple throws 
arm strength placement, some things like that, where we say, whoa, that's that's not something Case Keenum has done or can't do. And it, it may not even be a completion, Josh. It may be something where he, you know, five-step drop, looks, sees somebody on a deep skinny post and lets it rip. And we say, hold on, man. Did y'all see that throw? I get it. it. I get it. He didn't hit the wide receiver. Case can't even attempt that. And, and that's the one thing that, that I think is going to be the second point is Case Keenum can't make certain. The Rams can't tell him, look for this read, and if you've got, you know, say it's a 50-50 bowl, Case Keenum can't throw that because he can't hit that window, right? His deep balls have to be lobs. They have to be lofted up for wide receivers to run under. If Jared Goff can come in there and gun the ball 30 yards, 20 yards downfield, he can hit some different windows. And I just wonder, are they going to give him the plays to try to hit those windows? windows especially once they get a feel for the 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 defense the one thing i said was uh on their podcast last night the first half is what i'm worried about because the rams don't know how jared goff is going to respond respond to adversity respond to success whatever it is when he comes out and he makes his first big throw for a first down uh you know how how does that affect his confidence how does that affect the coach staff they he may come out and make a wow throw where you say damn that's really impressive do they start running things to try to force that into the dolphin's head or did they say okay let's stay conservative and let him build into it uh when he makes a mistake whether that catastrophic mistake or a acceptable mistake how does that affect the gameplay do the rams say okay this is a rookie quarterback we know he's going to misread some things he's not you know set his timing with certain guys the way we saw case keenum and kenny Britt develop that obvious rapport obviously this season you know it probably won't be the same between Jared Goff and Kenny Britt. It may it, we may have to wait to see. You know, Jared Goff develop that with Mike Thomas, Farrell Cooper, Tyler Higby, younger guys that develop in the NFL together. Um, you know, wh- when he doesn't have timing uh, on par with Kenny Britt and Brian Quick, and he makes maybe a little mistake, how do we see that tweak uh, from the offensive game plan? And what do we see from the Dolphins? Do they start dialing it up to get more aggressive to say, look, this guy isn't on the same sheet of music as everybody else. We need to take advantage of this. I say I think that's something that's going to take the Rams a little bit of time to play into and to get comfortable with. Whereas the Dolphins, they are who they are. They know the, who they've got uh, available. They're you know much more comfortable with their personnel than the Rams are certainly on offense, obviously. Uh, but we'll have to see, man. It's, it's just one of those things where I, I have no idea. You know what? What is the what are the Rams going to do on the first series? Think, think about it like this: the Rams get the ball. It's a it, let's say they get the ball first, touchback. You know, you want to try to get the running game going. I got it. Let's say they get a first down. It's first and 10. You're out of your own, you know, 25, 30. So you got some space. And obviously with Johnny Hecker, as soon as you get a first down, and even if you don't with that punt last week inside your own damn red zone, you're fine in a field position sense. First and 10 from your own 40, let's say. What what play do you call? Do you do you let Jared Goff take a shot deep? Do you Do you stay super conservative? and wait for him to grow into the game? Do you try to get Todd Gurley going for the first damn time? I have no idea, man. I have no idea. See, I don't think that Jared Goff is going to have a problem with memory. Um, This is a kid that came out and had no problems throwing four and five interceptions trying to beat USC here. You mentioned the, the Utah game. Oh, God. 
Yeah, but the thing is, though, neither, none of the inner, it was, there's a good and the bad with this. The one thing is, is he had a good, great short-term memory. The problem with that is that his short-term memory was too good and he didn't learn anything from it. He kept throwing, especially that Utah <laughs> game, he kept throwing the same pass. It's like, no, 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 you can't get that tonight. You got to turn that, you got to take that out. Yeah, take that one out of the playbook. It's not there. You don't have it. So, I mean, I, I I don't think he's going to have a problem, <clears throat> like you said, if he throws his first pick or whatever the case may be. As a matter of fact, I think Goff's got to be expecting to throw it for his first pick. If you're a quarterback with a big arm who loves to go out there and throw it and you're making your NFL debut, you graduated from Cal, I'm assuming you have some sort of common sense and smarts you probably have to know you're going to throw a pick, right? It's just common sense. Well, see, and that's this is why I say I don't know. I don't know if you said, is Jeff Fisher going to protect him? And that, that's where I still maybe, – maybe they want to let Jared Goff do this and they want to let him play himself into the NFL and uh, got it. But the, the chances that they don't – aren't zero. And that's all I'm saying. We, we have seen this offense. Remember the 15 play drive that we got last week where every play was what, four yards or five yards or shorter. I, I wouldn't be surprised if part of what these last 11 weeks were for and, and part of why they didn't let him come out and do that in week one in terms of shooting it all around the field was that they wanted to wait for him to understand that the way they wanted to run the offense was to not do that. Was that when you see a guy downfield, if he's not wide open, then just check it down and, and go to your next read and, and take if it's 50 50 downfield and it's 50 50 within six yards, go to the six yard target because that results in a turnover and less often than the six yard shot does and it allows us to keep the momentum building through the running game i just wonder if that's the case and i you know i suspect that the chances that's going to be what we see is greater than zero that's all i'm saying yeah i they probably are and you're you're going to end up being right i just wouldn't be surprised yeah. if golf were given a license to make the throws simply because you want a guy to get it out of his system <clears throat> Let him go out there. Let him have the either great rookie game or horribly awful learning experience that every quarterback seems to go through. It's it's one or the other, you know. And, and the, the, the only reason what I said on the site. Go ahead. I'll let you finish. I was going to say nobody has middle ground. You know, it's you either kick ass or you suck ass. It's it's one of the two. The only reason why I said on the site that it it, it won't matter if Jared Goff starts instead of Case Keenum, is that even if they open up some of the, with more frequency, some deeper action, you've still got Todd Gurley. You've still got Tavon Austin. You're, you've got to come back and keep the offense tight to the line of scrimmage. But how fast do you get Todd Gurley going in a season where you've had zero success getting the running game going? And then part in of the back, running in game... A back, in a backwards-ass way... How could you open up the running game? You could do it by making people fear the deep ball, which is something that Jared Goff no can doubt. throw without thinking twice. And if you can't, can. yeah, if you've got receivers with the speed of, say, Kenny Britt, Tavon. Who, uh, or Tavon Austin, 
who can run up under those things, then you're talking about one-on-one speed with Tavon and the DB going backwards. Look, I'm going to take Tavon in that battle. Yep. The, the only the only caveat I, I, I would throw out there is what I mentioned to Matt. This isn't Jeff Fisher's first year. This isn't his first wide receiver core. No. Right? He's, gone, he's had Kenny Bray. He's had Tavon Austin. He's had plenty of guys before, and never have we seen that kind of offense. With with regularity, you've seen it sprinkled in, and even, you know, from time to time, we'll see it deep when you, see, when you saw with the Titans, when Steve McNair was at his best, it was a combination of, of everything. It's because McNair could genuinely do a little bit of everything. And I think that it, it, it came down to the fact that Fisher likes to have a guy who's athletic enough to pick up a first down, yet at the same time, bomb at 60 yards downfield to a wide-open receiver. Look, Goff, in theory, should be able to do all of those things that Fisher has said to, to, to need with the whole, we got our guy. Like, that's what all of those things are. The guy. So if Jared got the only way to 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 get that out of a guy is to go out there and let him do it. I don't think that they'll open it up and have him throw fifty five times. I'm 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 being hyperbolic when I say that. I I think I hope. Um, but at the same time, it wouldn't surprise you or me if they did it, or if they did the exact opposite and let him throw the ball five times. Yeah. Um. You know, I don't know, but if, if if I can think of a backwards way to get the running game going, it's it's to throw the deep ball, and they've got the guys to do that. That that's the easiest way, and I I wouldn't be surprised if we see that whatsoever. The the one the one asterisk I would throw on there, like you mentioned, was Steve McNair, and that was the kind of thing I tried to highlight because everybody brings that back as the guy who showed that Jeff Fisher just needs. It's the right quarterback that all he needs is that quarterback and he can open things up. The first year Steve McNair went to the Pro Bowl, you know how many yards he averaged per game in the air? This is his first Pro Bowl year, 2000. How many uh, passing yards I, per game? I, I think it was some historically crappy number, like 180. It's 100, 178 yards. Oh, man, I had it mixed up, dude, and that was a guess, you know? too. That was a guess. You know, but here's the thing is that you've heard me poaching on jeff fisher over and over and over so that's an incredibly smart guess right this is uh, think about that josh he went to the pro bowl throwing less than 180 yards per game the only way you do that is if number one you contribute to the running game which is you know something case keenum and nick Foles couldn't do well we'll have to you know sam bradford had some mobility uh, as a quarterback, we'll have to see. Maybe that's something Jared Goff has in his pocket. We didn't see a ton of it at Cal, but maybe that's something that, you know, pocket presence. You you don't have to be Michael Vick. If it's second and three and you can identify, look, they're giving me five yards. I'm going to take five yards and slide. When you when you start taking that, that changes everything, right? So may, maybe that's something that Jared Goff has that Case Keenum doesn't really necessarily have is that kind of uh, ground component to maybe add a little something. Uh, number two, the only way you can be successful with 180 yards per game is if you make your 180 yards count. And that's what we didn't really see with Case Keenum was the the 15-yard drive that we got. We didn't see enough of those. We saw way too many th- three and outs. 
We saw way too many drives, and certainly penalties don't help, but we saw too many drives that just got killed off and too many empty yards. So, you know, getting two first downs after a touchback and then punting, those are just empty yards. Those don't do anything because now you punt and the, the other team gets a chance to get two first downs themselves. They punt and you start it over again. So all you've done is waste those passing yards. So Steve McNair's yardage got used in incredibly efficiently to to support the running game and then obviously the third way you make the pro bowl with 178 yards is you don't turn the ball over and and, you know what's surprising is that he had 13 interceptions tied for his second highest in his career that season but you know it was enough for voters to overlook everything else and you know in 2000 obviously that was a successful year for the titans uh you know mcnair went 12 and 3 as a starter but those are the kind of things that change things is when you're winning games when, when, when you're supporting an overall offense and certainly in 2000 when you got Chris Johnson and, you know, that rushing attack that they had back then, uh, that changes everything. And that's what the Rams haven't – they haven't put the whole package together. You know, they haven't had Todd Gurley plus an efficient running game, uh, plus, you know, a comprehensive running game, plus a the, the support from the passing offense. Plus the the stifling defense. This defense is is much more stifling uh, than it has been in, in recent years. Especially when you look at the the yardage. Um, you know, we're, we're the, I think the Rams are seventh in the league right now in yards allowed. They're doing a great. Last year it was bend but don't break. They're not even bending this year. They're stopping drives with much more urgency than they were in 2015, and that's after losing four starters. So. We'll have to see, man. I, I, I'm more interested in this game than I have been at any game this season, uh, for obvious reason. Uh, we'll have to see. I think if, if there's one worry, it's, uh, you know, the injury report that we got uh, today. Two defensive ends on it, Eugene Sims and obviously Robert Quinn, who went to the hospital uh, on Monday. Um, you know, I, nothing necessarily confirmed about the rumors, but given the volume of what we saw on social media and some other, uh, th- I guess the way the, the the Rams treated it as saying it's a non-specific injury, and they cited it they as a quote. They followed every HIPAA guideline known to man. Yep. Is what you're it's trying a, to say, and they should. That's the, that's the professional way oh, to yes, do it, absolutely. but no doubt it's just one of those things where. As a, as a compassionate human being, you wonder if somebody goes to the hospital with an undisclosed and maybe undiagnosed uh, medical condition, situation, issue, episode, whatever you want, whatever the right term, the, whatever the politically correct term is for this. I don't know. Uh, whatever the, the term is for that. You wonder, should he be playing NFL football within a week of that? And this is this is for somebody. Bear in mind that, you know, it needs to be brought up. You know, found a brain tumor uh, connected to his spine uh, in high school, and it's been benign since then. And he's had the regular. Do what? I say, gonna say, man, my my roommate had a uh, a, a brain tumor and had it had to have it removed uh, from his mm-hmm. head when he was a child down at UCLA Medical Center, and he doesn't even have one of his eyes. I mean, it's there, but. He, it's it's yeah. useless. It's pointless. I mean, it, it's just one of those things where if if you add all this up, you know, a benign brain tumor that got operated on, but it still has to get checked with regular medical visits. And what whatever happened on Monday, and, and I'm I've got no medical experience, so I'm not even trying to diagnose it. But when you throw all those things together, you just wonder: should he be playing football 
this Sunday. Especially my, with my, the... the compassionate. No, go ahead. I was just going to say the the compassionate side of me says, hell no, take take at least a week off, figure out what happened, what's going on, and let's diagnose let's diagnose it to the point that the Rams can at least say what it is and what's being done to treat it the same way that we talked about the brain tumor when he was at North Carolina and coming into the draft. Uh, and if that's the case that you're you're without Robert Quinn from a football sense and, you know, you got some other injuries on the on that side. I expect LaMarcus Joyner to be able to play. But Tim Barnes, your starting center who started every game this year and Eugene Sims, a core component. Uh, if any of those guys aren't able to go, uh, you wonder if uh, maybe a personnel attrition might be a random factor that goes into this game. Yeah, it certainly seems like that could be a factor in this game. And to your point, <clears throat> really, about Robert Quinn is, uh, you know, the whole reason I mentioned my, my roommate in, in his tumor is just simply because, like, the, the amount of things that he has to go through even now to to be tested when it's been removed are just... And again, we're not doctors and we don't even know what it is, but we're coming at this from being a decent human being thing. Like, knowing what my roommate goes through, if this is any way related, this is a huge if. This is me saying, if Robert Quinn were my friend, and if it, if it came back and he told me it was related to his brain tumor, I'd be like, dude, take the week off. You know, I yeah, agree go, with you. Just take this, take this week off. You're, you're, you've got a brain tumor. Go uh, run full speed against a 300-pound... Uh human being who works out every damn day and wants to uh, smash you. Yeah, go do that. Do the, do this comic book fan. Go, go play sports against the incredible Hulk. Cause that's pretty yeah. much what you do in the NFL. Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's get to listen to our question, man. Uh, I'll let, I'll let you pick the order. We got a bunch of questions. They're all great. Guide me. Where are we going? All righty. Let's start here with, well, this isn't so much of a question as a comment. We'll get it out of the way, though. KevHeff175, who I'm going to assume is not Kevin Heffernan. Um, it could be. See, could be, but I'm going to assume. Uh, the Rams' offense is the anti-air raid of the NFL. More or less. Okay, hurry, sure. hurry up and don't disagree. <laughs> well put. How about that? It's it's basically, if you were to throw on film of what Jared Goff did in college, then castrate that, then circumcise it, and then have a penile reduction, and you packaged it up and mailed it back in the cold that caused shrinkage, it would still be a smaller version of that offense. Like, here's what here's what I say. The the Rams drafted Tavon Austin and Stedman Bailey. Go look at what they did at West Virginia under Dana Holgerson. <laughs> look at what they've done. Look at what they did under the Rams. That's I'm not disagreeing with Kev Hef if it's the anti air raid next. Yeah. I mean, it is just it is painfully not fun to look at. Um, I feel it's like the difference. What what I would say is it doesn't mean it can't be successful. And th this is one thing I pushed back about, about the idea that Case Keenum sucked. He wasn't asked to do what, Air, what Jared Goff was asked to do at Cal. 
there it's completely different responsibilities and in that sense it is the anti-air raid the thing is when you get into a different system the the demands and the responsibilities are completely different failing at the air raid doesn't mean the same thing as failing in fishable and so that's one of those things where it's at, where, where you get into apples to oranges, and so just to make sure that comparison isn't too clean, the things that Jared Goff could fail at in the air raid are different than the things that Jared Goff probably will fail at at times uh, with the Rams this season. So we just a little preface uh, disclaimer before we get three weeks. Now, well, I'm just saying three weeks into this podcast from now that you know people saying, "Hey, well, he did this at a cow." Yeah, well, that's different. Yeah. This is fishable, yeah. and they're they're different things. They, they could not be more different if you tried. And I know that X's and O's are, are like, Chinese to some people, and so that's fair. Like, that's why I'm trying to, like, paint a picture of, of, like, seeing, like, a Ken Burns documentary versus, like, a Tyler Perry film. Like, they could not be more different. I don't know. Medea's Christmas, man. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one is Tyler Perry's... Uh, uh, film or which one are, are Tyler Perry's films and which one is uh, uh, Ken Burns' documentary? But I'm probably going to guess that Case Keenum's the more interesting of the two. Medea's Civil War. <laughs> uh, have they made a Medea Civil War? This is how ignorant I am. To, to it's a matter of time. It's a matter of time. <laughs> uh, so I feel like we answer this question every week, but if that means we're getting a new listener every week, it means I'll answer it every week. Uh, who would you like better as the new Rams HC? Now, they didn't give us any names, so I think they are asking uh, who we'd like as the next Rams head coach. Um I know I've mentioned my my top choice would be David Shaw. What about you? Well, here's my here's my only problem is that we've done all the conventional NFL things. We promoted the previously successful coordinator from the team in Mike Martz. We went with uh, up and comer in uh, Scott Linehan comer and steve spagnuolo what we haven't done is gone down and reached from the college ranks and yeah you know i i get it it's risky but it's one of the the rams haven't taken a risk um and i'm just worried that they're still too comfortable and especially when you've got jeff fisher who was kind of the the opposite go with the guy with the experience and not maybe the greatest resume but the experience and certainly relocation is one of those things that you can say okay that's part of why he was brought on but it, it, the only the only thing they haven't really done is gone to the college level and so i'm just worried that we're going to play into this you know uh nfl coordinator yet again that whether it's somebody who's doing a great job right now that uh, hasn't gotten a chance, Jim Bob Cooter at uh, in Detroit, somebody that's got a lot of respect that hasn't been in the right situation. And uh, you can talk about Vance Joseph uh, with the Dolphins, uh, other guys like that, the, that you're saying just need the chance to be a head coach. Um, the, the, the coordinator who's failed before, but it kind of like Elaine Kiffin failed with the opportunity, but has rebuilt his resume as a coordinator. And you can look at um, Josh McDaniels as an example of that. Um, you know, we, the Rams have done those and, uh, you know, the fact that we haven't won since 2003. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm kind of tired of trying these other things and I'm willing to, you know, take a risk. And if that means going for David Shaw or Kevin Sumlin or, um, 
I don't. Okay, I don't, all right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Kevin Sumlin. Get the. Uh, you you've got to be oh. kidding me. No, no. Here, here's what I would say. If Kevin Sumlin does more with less talent than oh. almost almost any of his peers, he, he, here's the dude has hands. I don't know you. how many. Hold on, hold on. Okay, less talent. Go ahead. Go Texas ahead. A&M's recruiting classes have been through the roof because of great. Johnny Menzel. They have been absolutely fantastic, and their problem has been keeping those athletes at Texas A&M, particularly quarterbacks, for a variety of different reasons. The biggest reason I can come up with is that Kevin Sumlin walks into all these badasses' living rooms and promises them the starting job. The problem is only one of them can actually have it. And when they realize that they're going to have to earn it, well, some of them choose to transfer out. Others of them, you know, they stay, they fight it out. But Kevin Sumlin has certainly had his fair share of talent come into the program through his own recruiting and was handed an all-world offensive line by the Shula regime because Lord knows they love them some offensive linemen. Uh, so the guy had talent when he was there and then came into talent after having been there. I don't see how doing more with, I would argue that somebody like a Brett Bielema does more with less. And even though that guy not not doing it this year, flat out, but here's what I meant is that Kevin, Kevin Sumlin has reached heights that Brett Bielema hasn't. And, and especially since he's gotten to the SEC, there's no doubt that Johnny Manziel was a talented college quarterback. I, I would I, here's what I would ask: Would Johnny Manziel have been nearly the player he was if Kevin Sumlin weren't the coach? And I might point to one of Kevin Sumlin's former quarterbacks when he was at Houston, Case Keenum, as an example of how he can get the most out of his talent. And you pointed to the fact that he hasn't had quarterbacks. And certainly, you could look at 2000. He has had quarterbacks, though. He has had them. He's brought in how many number one overall dual threat quarterbacks? Kyle Allen, Kyle Murray, Kyler Murray. I mean, Kenny Hill, Kenny Trill. Are you you telling me that those are? are, I get it that they were heavily recruited. Are you telling me right now that those, those are good quarterbacks? Okay, but he wanted them as his quarterback. He had at his disposal at that time free reign at any quarterback in the nation, and those were the targets that he decided upon. Whether or not they are actually quarterbacks is immaterial to the fact that he decided they were. Once he decided that those are quarterbacks, I have to judge them as that, right? So here's here's what I would say. What you're making an argument for is that he needs a general manager. I would agree. I have no I have no problem letting somebody else control general management just walk while me he does. Didn't you? you just walk well, me right into that, didn't you? Here, well, here's what here's what I'm saying. I'm a Rams fan. You got you got to remember. I'm I'm looking at things very differently than somebody who's coming from the outside. I'm looking at somebody who I want to coach football and if if we've got a quarterback that's going to be able to operate in the nfl and let's assume jared goff is i'm not saying he is i'm not saying he isn't if we assume that he is i would have no problem 
letting Kevin Sumlin, somebody who hasn't had that capability, and maybe you can blame him for being the the reason he hasn't had that talent at the position, but has been able to de- develop talent everywhere else, especially at the college level, and send the NFL quality talent on the offensive line, at running back, at wide receiver, at various positions on the defense, and is improving on that side of the ball. That's the kind of coach that I'm looking for that I can say can coach football, which is something we haven't had. There's no doubt talent acquisition is an issue. I'm not asking for him to be the general manager. And all I'm saying is if we're saying for somebody to be a head coach and I'm looking for the college ranks, I'm not looking for how they recruited. That doesn't matter to me as much as what they did once the personnel was set and how they got through. the. That's what I'm saying. You're saying he did more with less. I'm arguing that he had optimal talent and underachieved with it. This is a guy who never won the SEC, never even got Texas A&M to an SEC championship game. When we say hasn't gotten them to an SEC championship game, let's at least acknowledge what, what, that when we talk about SEC championship game, you're talking about one of the most difficult pathways in well, the game the compared SEC. to the Rams who haven't even made the play, who haven't put a winning record. Is since 2003. No doubt, he is not somebody that I say is going to take it, come in and immediately take them to the Super Bowl. My standards aren't that high. My standards I aren't SEC championship. Might different. as well promote Ed Orgeron. Like just well, make here, like here, here, a lot of his guys. Hey, if if Ed, if Ed Orgeron goes the next four years with LSU, and you know, and we say the same things about him that we're saying to Kevin Sumlin. I'd, I'd be willing to reevaluate that. Ed Orgeron right now at LSU, he's in, year, you know, interim year one. That's very different than Kevin Sumlin, who's at least had four years. This, this is something we – yeah, put it like this. Let's if put you something. had your choice of coaches, if you, were, if you were looking at your choice of coaches, I wouldn't have Kevin Sumlin in my top five coaches that I would try and poach. Realistic choices, <clears throat> I'm saying. I, I, I'm not uh, – I, I think that the reason I wouldn't have him is because not even a year ago, he was on the hot seat at Texas A&M. No doubt. So and, and, and I, and I think, think fairly. Little risk. Yeah, for certainly. Yep. And I just argued for the reasons why he was on the hot seat. So, oh, yeah, look, you defend that bone from that cat because he wants it oh. so bad. That was that was Pokey Dog making an appearance on the podcast. He's sitting next to me guarding his ultimate bone. Uh, they're called. Well, um, here, here's what I'd say. Let's make let's make Kevin Sumlin my ultimate bone. We'll put this on the back burner. We got okay. we got a lot we got a lot of NFL stuff to get to. And, and no doubt, here's what I would say this year for 2016. It's clear that the Alabama loss sent this team into a bit of a tailspin. The last two weeks, they've lost to both Mississippi teams. He's he's got to he's got to write this ship damn quick, and he's got LSU a week and a half from now. That's going to be a clear marker, right? And you go back to that Alabama game; that was his everything this season, and they failed. But Alabama's a different class. If you're asking me, is he in my top five? Maybe he is today. Maybe he's not at the end of the season. Let's do this. But ask me at the end of January, once Texas A&M gets through the season, gets through the okay. bowl game. That's ask me. But is he in my top five? Maybe. We'll see. It depends okay. on how these last That's That's certainly fair. Well, here's a question that'll tickle your anus. So, is a James Laurinaitis return a cooking? Favorite kind of question. 
<laughs> it's a James Laurinaitis comeback of cooking. Wants to know, Manuhari. No. Yeah, uh, th- not now. If, if, if in a different season, you know, especially if the Rams were seven and two, and had room at the back of the roster to bring in, you know, you see this in the NBA all the time. Teams getting ready to go to the playoffs, and they bring in, you know, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett. They, they right, they bring these guys in that are near the end of their careers. You Carl. want them on the bench. You want them. Yep, you want them in the locker room. Yet you need them to help you get through uh, the end of the season and, and tune up for the postseason, right? Once you get to the postseason, you need to be a different kind of team. Um, and veterans who have been in that situation know how to do that. James Laurinaitis, obviously, without the playoff experience, not a perfect analogy. I got it. But the Rams aren't that team. The Rams are going to Jared Goff this weekend. They, you know, they, they're the oh. youngest team in the NFL. And so the the time for James Laurinaitis to come back and be the veteran for this team isn't now. If that's going to happen, then we're going to do that with Roger Saffold two years from now, right? Yeah, or we're going to do that with uh, uh, Case Keenum coming back as a backup two years from now. Right now, they, they need to be gearing this team up with Jared Goff on a forward trajectory, and you don't do that bringing James Laurinaitis back. Love James Laurinaitis. Love what, you know, all-time leading tackler for the franchise. And deserves a spot in the team hall of fame no doubt but not not 2016 man the time is just not right well um i don't really have any sense to disagree with that but uh here's again more of a comment than a question uh from rob schultz 831 who said people need to understand that golf starting means nothing it's going to be the same basic offense with the same dumbass coach his words, not ours. I, I, and if I were betting on it, I, that'd be that'd be my bet. The uh, the the only the only caveat I'd add is what we said is if the the first half, if he manages that well, and they say, look, let's open it, and especially if they, you know, whether I don't know which one would would spur them on more, if the Rams are losing or if it's close. I think you know if they get ahead. You know, the Fisher's too conservative. He's just going to game control, clock uh, defamation, and just run the clock down and end the game. It, I, I don't know which of the two would motivate them to let Goff start opening it up more. If it's a close game, either one way or the other, if they're close and losing, tied, or just close, you know, up by a field goal, or if they're down two touchdowns. If they go down two touchdowns, maybe they say, screw it, this game's gone. Let's let golf, you know, let's see how he works downfield. Let's see if these guys have a connection and maybe, you know, maybe let Farrell Cooper start running routes that he hasn't run in the NFL yet. Maybe you start sending Tyler Higby deep down the seam and you say, look, you know, you might as well. Um, other than that, if, if this is anything close to competitive football from what we've seen the last couple of weeks, that's what you got to expect. I mean, it sucks, but it is what it is. That's the nature of being a Rams fan. Ah, well, Pitzer62 wants to know something else about the nature of being a Rams fan, and that is, if the owner is making the call, how does that bode for the coach? I don't, I I know there's a lot of people that think that Stan Kroenke was involved with this. I really don't think that's the case. Josh, time check. Where are we at? One twenty hour. We 
when hour twenty four before our first Premier League yeah, reference. We've got about five or ten minutes that's editable. There you go. <laughs> so what? We're past an hour. How about that? Cronky's yeah. not. He's not that. He's not a meddling owner. He's not Jerry Jones. He's not. He's not the kind of guy that want, especially not during this season. He might have more of an interest between seasons to say, okay, is this in the right trajectory? Do I feel comfortable with the development of this franchise? That kind of thing. He's not the guy that comes in, in the middle of the season and wants to meddle in the affairs. Jeff Fisher, and I get it, you got to take everything he says with a grain of salt, but when he came out and said he and Stan are on the same page and that he feels comfortable with his employment status, I think it's at least fair to say that's something that we can start from, from a public standpoint on behalf of the Rams head coach. And if that's the case, I, I, I don't know why we would think that Stan Kroenke is the one coming in and saying, change the quarterback, not after a win, you know, and, and not after – you know, they're, they're coming back to Los Angeles with it. You know, even if Case Keenum were playing in this game, they, they, there's a ch- chance that the chance to go five and five, you, know, you win the game and everybody gets behind the team and then everybody gets excited. Two game road trip and maybe you can turn things into a legitimate playoff push without Jared Goff. I don't, I don't know that Stan Kroenke would meddle in this. So that being said, you know, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to really uh, deal with that kind of conspiracy theory in, in terms of. If I think that demands some sincerity, but what I'd here's what I'd say is that if if you think Kroenke is intervening in these kind of things, if you think what do you say quote unquote the owner is making the calls, if you yeah. think Stan Kroenke is making if you think Stan Kroenke is making these calls with Jeff Fisher, who's the most autonomous head coach maybe in the NFL right now, number one, where does Cronky stop in terms of making the calls and and two once Jeff Fisher is gone whenever that happens if he, if he's willing to tell Jeff Fisher what to do he sure as hell is going to tell somebody who doesn't have Jeff Fisher's resume what to do I think that's the more worrisome idea about that conspiracy <laughs> theory all that time losing is said coach well you know what I'm saying well but to somebody who's been in the league for 22 years you you become the all time losing as head coach because you're doing certain up. things right. Right. If you, you know, what I'm saying? if you're if you're just a horrible head coach, you're getting fired. Jeff Fisher is doing certain things right to please his owners in, in across his resume. And, and I, I don't know that you do that. You do those things right. And then have an owner meddling in your affairs in the middle of a season. That just. Uh, well, and anybody who thinks that Stan Kroenke is meddling has clearly never watched a Stan Kroenke team. <laughs> and, and not just Arsenal, but look at Denver Nuggets, Colorado Avalanche, Colorado Rapids. I mean, that's not that's not how he works, man. Not not midseason. Nope. Ah. Okay. Uh, Pepo fifty four. <clears throat> Actually, I'm going to come back up here to uh, Charlie Stymist, who wants Charlie. to know: Should we expect? to draft some up uh, up and coming offensive line in the coming years. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, felt like it piggybacked I, nicely. Yeah, well, it's you know, they don't have a first round draft pick. I don't know who the general manager head coach are going to be moving forward. Uh, I, I, I literally have no clue, man. I have, I, I would have expected the Rams to do more at wide receiver by this point. I would have expected them to do more, uh, 
consistently about the offensive line instead of waiting until 2015 and then just drafting a bunch of guys at once and hoping that all of them worked out. Um, you know, I, I don't know. May, uh, offensive line is certainly, and especially if you look at left tackle, is shaping up to maybe be the biggest need on the roster. But, it, I mean, coming years, sure. You can, I mean, just the by the law of averages, we're going to draft some offensive linemen, whatever coming years means. Was that what he said, coming years or whatever? Um, but if we're talking uh, about the 2007. I yeah. think he more meant it as up and coming. Oh, yeah, he did say and the coming years. But he said up and coming linemen, which I, I suppose anybody coming out of college would be up and coming. But I, I do think that if I'm if I'm reading into his question, I do think he means like late round picks, but, you know, up and coming linemen. So maybe a guy who they've they've had to do their due diligence on, but they're going to get some value out of him as a third round pick. Like this is a guy that plays as a second or maybe even late first rounder, but has this issue or that issue. So people graded him lower. You know, and, yeah, so at, and least, at least to that point, we've got some history that, and we can say, yeah, that's more likely than not. Rakevius Watkins, Demetrius Rainey, uh, and then certainly obviously 2015. So the, at least the Rams under Jeff Fisher have a history of doing that. And if, you know, Jeff Fisher and or Les Snead is the general manager out, then yeah, you got to assume anything's on the books. And certainly the way the offensive line has played the last two years since that 2015 wave, you got to assume that's going to be on the need sheet. So I'd say, uh, if you're if you're watching the college game for talent, I think the offensive line is as good as any uh, to pay attention to. Well, you know, speaking of the college game, I just want to read out a poll that tickles my. Is it about, is it about Kevin Sumlin, Josh? Are you making? No, up? no, 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 no. I was going to read out our Case Keenum poll. Who a question was put out with Keenum out? Who is now the best quarterback in LA? Uh, the Ramily is loyal. It doesn't matter if they have played one game, a hundred games, or no games. They will say he is the best quarterback in L.A., and Goff swept it away with 46% of the vote. Coming in second, and probably, actually, and, and likely will be for this year the best quarterback in L.A., Sam Darnold. And I'm not just saying that. I'm saying that because I think it's probably going to end up being true, statistically, anyway. I um, think there's an injury that affected the results had he been healthy, but continue. Who? Oh, Keep going. Uh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Coming in third, uh, <laughs> despite not even really being a blip <laughs> in the, the eye of the Rams organization, is Sean Mannion. The, the Rambly really came through on this poll, man. They really did. Uh, Sean Mannion's better than Sam Darnold in option number four. They, he's a human on this earth, goddammit. I love it. <laughs> In option number four, coming in with not even double-digit percentage points. Couldn't even get 10%. Josh Rosen. Can you can you imagine? Ask not. Uh, if you would have asked me that question this time last year, instead, if I knew that Goff was going to be on the Rams, if I knew it and I were going to be rating these guys, I would still probably have Mannion at third just out of some respect. I wouldn't put him as dead last, you know. Well, he's in the NFL. He's got to be better than whoever's going to be last. But I probably would have had 
Goff coming in last just statistically because I, you know, he was a bear raid guy going into a West Coast off, mod, uh, 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 a version of the West Coast offense. Um, and, and I just think that that that's going to take its toll on anybody learning a new system. So I, I probably would have had him last, but uh, I, I would have had Rosen probably first with Darnold in third. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Donald, we, did, we didn't really know until we saw, and once we saw, okay, that's impressive. Sean Mannion, I don't know. He, like I said, he's a human on this earth. I'm not sure the Rams even know. Jared Goff, huge question mark going in. There's, there's no doubt, I think, if you look at the four in terms of their translatable talent, Sam Darnold, since he's come in, obviously, very impressive and coming, you know, recency bias when you come off a win over a top four Washington team things look really good but if you look at the entirety of their resume and what Josh Rosen is building as a prospect going towards the NFL you you can argue he's going to be a more attractive prospect overall than Jared Doesn't Goff was does not matter what Josh Rosen did in his sophomore season because they will say that it is, you know, uh, UCLA was going through a down year. The Mora revolution had worn thin, whatever the case may be. Like, this is, that's still an attractive job that somebody will want, especially with oh, the money no, yeah. that UCLA will throw at that position. If Ben Guerrero has any sort of sense whatsoever, he will throw an obscene amount of money at the next UCLA head coach because USC is starting to get back to that and UCLA is starting to go the opposite direction and what happens with these programs is that they get in their own heads for USC that's a great place to be because in your own head is an obscene number of conference titles, national titles and all that other crap for UCLA the pickings are a lot more sparse and and if you get in your own head and think that you're going to come in second yet again, then everything becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the things that really separated the Bruins out, uh, at least when Mora first took over, is that when they came in under Hundley, there was no question in their mind that they were going to win that day at USC. Those UCLA teams were not going to lose. And that edge is gone. Like, it's gone. Here's what I say. Rosen is the talent, the market, but, but the program around is, is stumbling. And I think. UCLA. Yeah. So here's what I'd say there's an obvious UCLA hire that's got to be made, right? It's, it's got to be Brian Harson from Boise State, right? I mean, when you, when you got the whole Steve Sarkeesian, Chris Peterson, USC love triangle. There's nothing that would piss USC off more than if UCLA went off the new Boise State, you know, golden child and and let him start making it like that's got to be the higher, right? You could certainly make it. But if you're UCLA, why don't you look at less miles? Look, man, uh, I understand that. uh, Hey, but, 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 but my point here is this UCLA, you have to remember this. UCLA and USC, when it comes to at the highest levels of their donors, function in the sense of who? Give me a name. What are they doing? Now, Brian Harson represents a, an outstanding future. 
But if yeah. you're a top level USC donor, how comfortable are you, or you UCLA donor? Excuse me. How comfortable are you going to feel saying I'm gonna I'm gonna float the money to buy out Jim Moore Jr. Fire him and bring over a Brian Harson out of his closet at Boise State and make him yeah. the the head coach of a of a pack. Five pro or a power five program that he has no experience at none. Hey, let's say, let's say this. Put that on the back burner too. Let's get that. Let's get that in January. Let's put Kevin Sumlin and Brian Harson are our first two okay. points of order. Here's an easy one to get back into the rams of it all. What do you think of Fisher saying that they will exp- – what do you think of Fisher saying just nothing, a grain of salt? You said that earlier in the podcast. That's answered. So <laughs> what will be their cap position at the start of the new year wants to know Straker 65. By the way, Austin Sports was the was the uh, individual who Fisher called expanding. it last question. Yeah, uh, Fisher expanding things. But take anything Fish says with a grain of salt. That's just a rule. We're not going to flake on it. Okay. Here's what I say. Not a bad question from Austin, but well, here's what I think of Fisher saying it. Let's wait and see on Sunday. There's no, you just gotta wait. Um, cap position started the new year. I think the question is number one. Uh, I posted the uh, free agent list. Looking at, let me pull it up uh, while I bring this up. Um, free agent list, not only this year but for next year. You got to, because remember, if you're talking about Kevin Demoff and even less need to whatever role he has. Excuse me, as general manager what he's looking at moving forward. Um, you you got to start thinking about those free agents as well uh, this off season. But the, the real key is, are they going to pull off a early off season move? Like what they did last year when they cut Chris Long, James Laurinaitis, Jared Cook, when you make those kind of moves and you remove them from the process, not only do you have to worry about uh, free agents, but now you add to your draft needs and you say, okay, what do we need to do when you cut uh, Jared Cook? Clearly, you got a hole at tight end, so the Rams go out and draft a fourth round and sixth round tight end. Uh, you know they had depth at defensive end, so they didn't have to deal with that. Uh, you know, lose a linebacker, you draft Josh Forrest. Um, cornerback, obviously, they went after Cody Sensabaugh. that didn't work, so they had to spin up Troy Hill. They went out and signed Dwayne Gratz. Those kind of decisions change how you focus your offense. So it's not just about what cap space is; it's also what are they going to do. Uh, you know immediately going into the offseason saying, okay, these are veterans that we may have extended before that have a couple of years on the contract that we don't need to deal with or don't want to deal with that may change uh, their outlook for free agency and their cap position. That being said, here's what I put on the site. Um, and Josh, this is where, you know, the, the thing I've said about Jeff Fisher is he's had time to build his team. He should have gotten better results by now. The problem is he's, he's losing his guys, Janoris Jenkins, Rodney McLeod, and obviously Jared Cook, free agent signing, Chris Long, James Lornett, this veterans from the previous administrations that, that he had to lose out on. He He's starting to lose the core of his previous teams, and we're going to see that again this offseason. Here's your unrestricted free agent list. Trumaine Johnson on a franchise tag, weren't able to reach a long-term deal with him last year. We'll have to see moving forward. Kenny Britt had the best uh, opening salvo of any wide receiver on the team. Part of that was a chemistry with Case Keenum, and now that Jared Goff is taking over the team, if Kenny Britt falls off a cliff and we see Jared Goff working with other wide receivers, more consistency changes everything. 
Similarly, Case Keenum, uh, his one-year deal expires this year. Um, you got you got to assume that he's not as valuable a part of this franchise moving forward. And that you know, with Sean Mannion on the roster, they they don't need to invest in quarterback. It's the Jared Goff show. You got a long-term backup in Sean Mannion, a human on this earth. You deal with it. Brian Quick, another wide receiver. Uh, who knows? Benny Cunningham, backup running back to Todd Gurley, is he replaceable? Greg Zerline. You know, had a really tough 2015, rebounded so far in 2016. Last uh, couple attempts have been a bit of a struggle, but he's got a lot of time to cement his status move forward. And then the rest are more or less he's, just he's guys. He's been on this Dwayne earth, goddammit. Well, we'll see. Uh, Dwayne Gratz, Cam Thomas, Stedman Bailey, uh, who's no longer with the team. The other one you got to worry about is TJ McDonald. Uh, later pick, L.A. guy, does that matter? I don't know. Uh, but, uh, I think T.J. McDonald will be inclined to re-sign with Los Angeles. He's an L.A. guy. His family are, are California people, you know, right there from here in the Valley. Um, they know California, and T.J. McDonald loves playing in the Coliseum. Like No doubt. Here's the difference. In college, that matters a lot. In the NFL, the, old, the, the first and only thing that though. matters – yeah, for the fans, no doubt. For the, in the NFL, the first and only thing that matters is the money. TJ McDonald is TJ McDonald is getting paid less than Dwayne Gratz this year. That that's the difference between a draft pick and a free agent signing. You've got to find ways to get your mid and late round draft picks into your starting lineup because that allows you the cap position to be able to do Rams things. To sign. The Rams run their team. Like, if if you were able, like, if there were a sell-on clause or something like they had in soccer where for everybody that the Rams draft and then, you know, they, they, and they sign with another team in free agency, they get a fee, like, the Rams would be rolling in dough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially after this last offseason, no doubt. And so that's the thing. TJ McDonald is only on the roster right now at $730,000. He's not even at a million. Um, that, that's the, that's the, if, if there's a concern out of that list, number one is Trumaine Johnson because they lost Janoris Jenkins and Rodney McLeod a year ago. Number two for me would probably be TJ McDonald, because if you're going to re-sign him, you're not re-signing him at $700,000. You're spending a lot of money and that's going to affect all the other deals, uh, everywhere else. Now I mentioned 2018. I don't want to take this too long, but in 2018, here's who you got going up. Greg Robinson, Tim Barnes, Aaron Donald, Alec Ogletree, LaMarcus Joyner, EJ Gaines. You, you, those are all unrestricted free agents after 2000, excuse me, 17 season going into the 2018 offseason. You got to re-sign Aaron Donald. Yeah, if, well, if you're not, comes, this is a perfect time to squeeze in a question since you're going long on this one anyway. LA Rams yep. fan wants to know, says, bold prediction. If the Rams extend Fisher, some of these players walk, and I don't think Aaron Donald yeah. signs with the Rams. It's Well, you can't re-sign all of them. So even if we say Greg Robinson, okay, move on. Tim Barnes, okay, move on on if you if you re-sign Aaron Donald Alec Ogletree EJ Gaines LaMarcus Joyner if if you re-sign TJ McDonald Trumaine Johnson you you can't do that and do almost anything else in free agent that's your who whoever asked the cap position question that's your cap position right there you don't have anything left Aaron Donald is uh, is you know one of the greatest one of the best players in the NFL E.J. Gaines has proved himself a, a capable starter. Trumaine Johnson has proven himself maybe uh, an above average or very good starter. 
LaMarcus Joyner, at least as a slot cornerback, proved himself as a capable starter. You, you, you don't have money to re-sign all these guys through free agency. And so, you know, the, the point I was trying to make is that they got really difficult decisions coming on. If, if they re-sign Jeff Fisher and you can't sign Donald, that at least makes the decision part easier. I don't know that's the outcome fans want is to lose Aaron Donald and to keep Jeff Fisher. That seems kind of the worst of both worlds. But, you know, it, the, the point of looking at cap position and looking at free agency and roster collection moving downfield is that you, it's just it's going to be almost impossible to keep everybody. And, and so you're you're likely going to have to shed some of your higher priced re-signings, some of your some of your, you know, higher priced free agents that you want to look at. That's just not the way the NFL works. You got to build through the draft. And the reason why is the TJ McDonald contract. You got to get starters who are under a million. You got to get starters who, like Aaron Donald, can give you Pro Bowl caliber talent on the quote unquote cheap um and the, the, the problem is now without a first round draft pick next year, they're tied to Jared Goff. And so, you know, when you talk about these guys, the price of not re-signing these guys is Jared Goff. And so, you know, it, Josh, if, if we're talking about this in a year, in a year and a half, and we say, why couldn't the Rams re-sign a bunch of these guys? Part of the reason is going to be because they traded up to get Jared Goff, period. Yep. End of story there. Um Let's move on to another question. I like these ones from Sean West, too. Um, and here's a good one. He says, As in today's article, I saw a lot of people saying True will leave and that he is an elite. What do you think? He plays elite to me. Yeah, I asked him about this, and I, I, I hate that word elite because it means different things to different people, yeah. and it certainly means different things at different positions. What's the difference between an, an elite center and an elite cornerback, right? So he he came back with a metric, I think it was you know yards allowed or something like that. Obviously, that metric has nothing to do with a center or a quarterback. Um, so this idea of eliteness, I don't know. And, and the other thing that I threw at him that – you know, you have to consider when you talk about eliteness and re-signing free agents is how much of what somebody does is because of what he does in a system. We talk about the offensive system all the time and the quarterback position, the fact that they're so limited. If the defensive system makes cornerbacks look better than they are, and certainly with the Rams, you, you, you need to look at Janoris Jenkins, and I, I get it that maybe that's not the case. But what, I, what I'm saying is – if Trumaine Johnson is performing his job, yeah, baseball fans know this. It's war. Wins above replacement, right? If you can get somebody that would play the cornerback position the same as Trumaine Johnson, who looks very good, then it's not Trumaine Johnson who's playing elite. It's that the position makes those players look elite. The same way that the Rams system makes players at quarterback look as if they're the worst in the NFL, right? Whether it's, you know, Case Keenum or Nick Foles. When you, when you talk about the 31st, 32nd ranked offense, it, it may not be the guys who are doing that job. It may be that the, that the entire company is deficient. And, and so, you know, when you talk about eliteness, and, and I just went through the 2017, 2018 free agents, you got to make value judgments, right? If, if quote unquote, Trumaine Johnson is elite, what is Aaron Donald? What is more, what is elite times 10? Like whatever. That's what, that's what Aaron Donald is. And and so you got, you got to decide how much better is this guy than what we're asking him to do and how important that is that to the overall success of the franchise, right? 
you, you, a clear example of where that doesn't apply for me is Todd Gurley, number 10 overall pick, right? Not a, not a bust like, say, Greg Robinson, but somebody that doesn't provide position value over other options. How much better is Todd Gurley making this team, right? How, how, how many wins can the 2016 Los Angeles Rams point to that they're going to get this season because of Todd Gurley? And not only that, if he's failing, and that's that's on him, how much would a replacement do that's any worse? What would Trey Mason be doing this season that's any worse than Zach Stacy? There's Zach Stacy. What would Zach Stacy be doing this season that's any worse than Todd Gurley? Right? It's not that Todd Gurley's not a better running back. It's that the system doesn't allow for them to do those better things. So when we talk about Trumaine Johnson. Obviously, last year, Janoris Jenkins, uh, but moving forward, EJ Gaines, LaMarcus Joyner with different responsibilities, albeit as a cornerback. One of the things that Rams fans have to look at is what do they provide to their position within the system that regulates their value versus replacement? And I know that's a lot to try to assess, and that's difficult. We don't know, we don't know what coaches are asking them to do, and it seems tough, but you know, as, as to the extent that we evaluate these guys and try to make these decisions, part of what we need to evaluate is, is he replaceable? Not is, not is he good, not is he elite, but would somebody else in that position be elite as well? Head equals spinning. Well, that when no, I was just about to say that answer took up all of our time. We now have to go, but we really don't. Well, but we do have about ten minutes left, so I want to ask this final question because I know that this actually is something near and dear to your heart. Berlin Rams wants to know, hey guys, who is the guy who's doing the awesome videotape view for your site? Would love to ask him why second half running versus Jets looked okay for Todd Gurley uh, for the first time. This year, sorry. Yeah, tape review has been uh, QB class. Their class, um, hit him up at QB class on Twitter. Um, Brandon Bate did a great look. If you guys missed it a couple days ago, I think it was last week. Had a look at the running game and part of the struggle. Um, I pointed to some of that uh, about the Jets game, but the the regular uh, tape review has been QB class. So definitely hit him up about some of that. Here's what I'd say. Yeah. They, they face the Jets, and that's a specific one-game issue. You can't extrapolate too much from one game, especially from one half of one game. What I'd say is that the Rams aren't committing themselves to uh, any aspect of the run game. And the fact that you see Todd Gurley's run totals, I think, is indicative of that. that the, the same way of what we saw last year when they maybe overcommitted um, is what's different. And I think, you know— the the old way they used to talk about this, Josh, was what they, they would say, and, and maybe this is something, if we get Eric Dickerson again, we can ask him, is the idea that it takes some running backs X amount of carries to get going, right? It, it, it would take some running backs this many carries to start getting in a groove and start the same way a pitcher in baseball takes this long to get into his command and get into his system. You know, you had Todd Gurley come out second game of his career, second start of his career, excuse me, and he had 30 carries. He hasn't had that once this year. He's only had three games where he's had more than 20 carries. Um, so I, I, I just I just don't know, you know, do, do they need volume against the Jets? That was one of the three games where he had more than 20 carries. And so, you know, part of it is offensive line, part of it's coaching and system. And the fact that the passing game isn't opening things up, certainly part of it, Todd Gurley has to own it this part. I mean, it's, it's so far deep into the, 
the season. If he was that unstoppable individually, we would have at least seen that in one complete game, in one big breakout run, and the fact that we haven't gotten it, he's got to own that too. But, um, you know, at this point, I'm a little bit concerned about the volume only because we saw some games where the Rams really leaned into him pretty heavily, and we've only seen that once this year, and that was the 27 rush game in Tampa Bay, which, yeah, I don't know if you want to say uh, it's a coincidence or not that the Rams were able to win that game with their highest scoring output of the year. Well, if the Rams are going to have any hope of beating the Dolphins, if it turns into a shootout, look at how I'm bringing all of this back to this Sunday's game so I can get predictions before we do our huge social media sign-offs and whatnot. Um, how do you see the game playing out? Are the Rams going to fall into that trap of 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 a shootout or are they going to force the dolphins to play their type of game based on what you've seen the past couple of weeks i have a feeling i know what you'd say but you surprise me often enough that i'm going to ask the question anyway yeah i don't know i mean it, it comes out of the first half yeah, and there no you go yeah well here's what i say they're, they're going to try to ease Jared Goff into it and run the the normal Fisher Bowl offense and see if see if he can string together that 15 play drive right because that makes things really easy if you can get the running game going if you can get a bunch of first downs and you don't ask him to do a ton and everybody else around him is doing things it makes it very easy they're going to ask the defense to clamp down and not allow you know win the field position game the way they were against the New York Jets uh, so that, uh, you know, they're not giving up easy field goals to the Dolphins and you're not uh, flipping field hard so that Jared Goff, you don't want him working out of his own damn end zone in his first game, right? Uh, so the defense is going to take the onus. You're going to want some comprehensive, simple offensive consistency. Uh, if they can get that, then maybe they start opening things up. If those things start failing, and that may, that, you know, again, this may not be on Jared Goff. Then, then, you know, the Dolphins are going to gain some confidence that, okay, we don't need, even need to worry about this. They don't have an offense that's going to be able to beat us. And, and on the, you know, if they start, if they get any kind of uh, production from the offensive side, if they get, if they get a touchdown or two in the first half, what I said last night on their podcast was, I think if they get two touchdowns in the first half, there's just no way the Rams can win that game. You, you got to get to halftime in a low-scoring uh, uh, plotting game and, and let Jared Goff build into it. And if anything strays from that, man, I'm going to be worried. So we'll see. On that note, I think I am going to pick the Rams to lose because there's really no way to, to come away from that and feel optimistic, or at least that's how I feel. Uh, <clears throat> you... You can generally talk me into the Rams losing, uh, which I think okay. <laughs> is a sign of negative peer pressure. Uh, no, I, I just think for me, uh, really what this comes down to is, is, is something simple. One team is surging one way. Another team is, is trying to scrap yeah. and find signs of life through replacement. And I think that when you look at everything that Matt mentioned on the podcast, especially with the insight he provided on on how Gase is getting 
not only the respect of these players, but the most out of them on the offensive and defensive side of the ball. Um, You just kind of look at that and say, well, that's what the Rams would aspire to be. And and yet they are not there under a fifth year head coach. So in in a a battle of who's going to outwit whom, I, I think Gase will win. I th- it, here's what I think. If, if there's a positive to take away, I think the Rams have the edge on talent. Um, you know, I, yeah. now I, I said this for years. Long-term Rams fans will know, hey, you said we had the roster to, to, to compete for three years now, and we haven't. And that's the case. But if you're looking at a weak matchup, I said, you know, take their offense against our defense, which is strength on strength. Hey, I don't mean this as a slight to Dolphins fans. We face better offenses, and we shut them down. And especially if the Rams are healthy, and I'll even subtract Robert Quinn, but I'm going to keep everybody else on, on, on the injury report. So let's assume Lamarcus Joyner, Eugene Sinzerbeck. The Rams are seventh in yards allowed this year. You got Aaron Donald, you got uh, Trumaine Johnson, EJ Gaines, TJ McDonald, Al Gogletree. They've got the talent to deal with pretty much any offense that the NFL can approach. So I feel that they can deal with Miami's offense. On the other side, yeah, Jared Goff is going. Here's here's all I was gonna say is that if we're gonna take it on both sides, strength on strength, I think defense can deal with the offense. On the other side, you know, I think that Jared Goff isn't uh, you know established as an NFL quarterback, but he's got talent, he's got physical skills, and you've got guys around him: Tom Gurley, Tavon Austin, Kenny Britt this year, and maybe some other question marks like Tyler Higby, Harold Burton. Haven't really showed up with their best NFL games yet. And if uh, ever a time to start, this is going to be weak because they, you know, you're going to have all of Los Angeles on Sunday and a lot of non-Los Angeles NFL fans watching the Rams to see what kind of NFL quarterback Jerry Goff is. Yeah, and that's that's certainly going to be a, a, a gigantic factor, I think, in the overall argument of what is this going to do to Jared Goff's mentality is that, <clears throat> excuse me, even um, even one of our list, or, uh, listeners, readers uh, pointed out that uh, Sky Sports picked up the game. You know, uh, so obviously <laughs> Lanny had tweeted, you know, that it was the Twickenham effect. Uh, and that may very well be the case. But when, you know, when you talk about golf getting a start, certainly at a, at a, at a surging NFL country like the UK, um, you know, there are going to be a lot of damn eyes on this game. And, and how he comes out of the wash is certainly going to be, I think, probably one of the biggest factors in whether or not he's going to end up living up to his potential or whether or not this is going to be too much for him because he's already got people wondering whether or not this is too much for him. And I think JB had pointed out an outstanding stat about, you know, only a couple people have, have ever made their debut later than Goff is making his debut number one overall picks. So, um, yeah, there's certainly an immense amount of pressure and eyeballs coming in and going out of this game. So I'll, I'll be interested to see how it's dealt with, and, and we'll be here to talk about it next Wednesday. Um, so with that, man, uh, where can people find us on social media, Joe? Turf Show Times, Instagram, Twitter. Facebook. The one thing I think you mentioned, uh, the international offense, UK tuning in. 
Josh and producer Scott, who's out there somewhere. The Rams have been on uh, San Diego market television before. They've been on Fresno before. This is this week we'll have Bakersfield, Fresno, and San Diego. We where it's on the national broadcast. On the fact that because it's only Fox Lake game, they're taking up some of the biggest major media markets in the country, taking advantage of CBS games. So the, you've got Baltimore, Dallas, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Nashville, Indianapolis, Jacksonville, and Detroit are all getting Rams football this weekend. Greg Goss going to have a hell of a lot of people uh, watching him this weekend when he starts. So hit us up on social media. Hit us up on uh, the site. I'm back, bitches! I'm back! Wow, young fellow's going to have to step it up. I came back with a thunder. (laughs) And a blue check mark, apparently. Yeah. Well, that that matters. That does. That does. Apparently, apparently I, I can also cross off my list having Eric Dickerson share one of my posts on Facebook off the bucket list. Uh, cause that just happened. That's, that's kind of surreal, man. When an NFL hall of famer shares something you wrote, that kind of puts your life in perspective. Like I get to write about this man. <laughs> yeah. And talk to him. Well, I was really looking at it from, you know, I'm, I'm a plebe. I'm a plebe. I like, I get to worship at the feet of the Kings. You can't. Possibly when you got a blue check mark. Oh man! Seriously, I don't even have one, man. Yeah, I'm a plebe. What do you want? One of these blue collar. All all I'm gonna say, all I'm gonna say, is that crappy, like worthless sites that have like 15 followers have blue check marks. So you know, as my buddy, as my buddy Sean says. And this is a shout out to one of the more intelligent football minds I know uh, living in Florida. But as my buddy Sean says, there's a blue check mark syndrome on Twitter. And everybody thinks that the person with the blue check mark has more knowledge than somebody without the blue check mark. And that just isn't the case. Like, I would take Derek Klassen's knowledge and put it up against mine, and he would eviscerate me. Like, I wouldn't even get out of the first round in a 12-round fight. I would be humiliated. It would. I would be a tomato can that Mike Tyson obliterated on the way to, to winning a, a heavyweight title. Or, even, possi- or even possibly, I, I just, like, one of the dudes he obliterated when he got out of prison. Like, I want a new, like, 10-minute tops podcast. Of Josh humiliating himself of things he would be. I wouldn't even be. I wouldn't even be a badger's pubes all of a sudden. I wouldn't be. Like, I think you should be. I could do it. That I could do. Uh, but yeah, well, no. Maybe fine. Maybe we can have it. What's up? I said maybe we need to make it happen, man, because we're turning out great stuff, and that's why everybody needs to hit us up. You're about to drop it. Yep, and uh, with that, we will catch you next week after the Dolphins win, lose, or draw in Miami.
Hey everybody, it's Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Vergecast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Vergecast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else. Also, you listen to podcasts, check it out.